Today, Londoners have woken up to a very different city. Over half of America is on lockdown. As many of us must stay at home as possible. Welcome to the latest in a series of events and conversations called Leadership in Extraordinary Times. I'm Peter Tufano, the Dean of Said Business School at the University of Oxford. While the coronavirus is not defined by nations or regions, the economic, humanitarian, political, and other implications vary across the world. In upcoming episodes, we'll be speaking to leaders from the Americas, China, Africa, and more to understand what's going on in their parts of the globe. I think we'll find that while there are clear differences, there are similarities and themes already echoed in this series, which will resonate across countries. The need for principled leadership, the need to make evidence-based decisions, and the as-yet unsatisfied need to collaborate. In this episode, we travel to Mexico to hear from two renowned and respected leaders in the business world there about the impact of COVID-19 on the country's economy and financial markets and what's being done to address it. Maria Ariza is the general director of the new institutional stock exchange, Biva, in Mexico, and Alvaro Rodriguez Aregui is co-founder and managing director of Ignea Venture Capital. Moderating the conversation is my Oxford Said colleague, Professor Matthew Amengill. Matthew is a member of our international business group. He's a scholar of Latin America with a particular expertise in the political economy of development and global labor standards. His work explores the politics of promoting economic development that's both equitable and sustainable. So I'll start out broad um, before we get into the specifics and ask you, before the uh, pandemic hit, what was happening in, in Mexico's economy? What were, were promising opportunities? Where were things going positively? Let me just take you back three to five years ago in Mexico. We were doing good. We reached innovation stages, very comparable with many important out, outperforming growing emerging economies. And these had grown private investment in the form of microfinancing uh, companies, uh, financial lessers, and also venture and private equity managers. We saw spaces for new ideas, disruption, innovation, and access to capital. In fact, in fact, it had been amazing to see the whole ecosystem strengthening across Latin America. Startups and entrepreneurship ecosystem was really, really flowing. In fact, uh, Global Entrepreneurship Manager considered Latin as one of the most um, important region of early entrepreneurship worldwide. So in terms of venture capital, the last five years were the most active in terms of transactions and amount invested. I saw it through Amex Cap when I was leading the private equity association and I, I met Alvaro there. We experienced and saw this great 22% annual growth rate for 10 years. We got to the point of having eight funds of private equity to more than 150 active funds in Mexico, managing more than 58 billion under, um, assets under management. We've transacted more than 2,000 companies, and those are becoming important, growing companies, institutionalized. I think we actually managed to mature and transform this traditional way of doing business in Mexico as, you know, as family-owned business. So we started to see Mexican startups being funded from international investors as well. So in this sense, the early 
and expansion stage of funds were boosting, but we were not seeing many exits, no liquidity for investors. Only 4% of exits were tapping the markets compared to other economies. So the reality is that few funds in Mexico were actually considering the market as their exit strategy. So what was happening? Actually, we compare the size of capital markets, we are very, very behind its potential. The world market capitalization is equivalent to 73 trillion US dollars, and of this amount, 0.51 is represented by Mexico. The market is considered small, stagnant, with the same companies, no investors, no dynamism, very boring. So this is why was the objective of Viva, in order to offer an efficient and accessible funding option for medium-sized growing companies. Hundreds of businesses need across capital to support and manage risk in the years ahead. Innovative startups and major technology partners, no, even, even a hub for LATAM as well, that could attract more activity into the region. We saw all of this. So we had a great, great potential of, of market out there that was not being served by markets at all. Viva, you know, has been an important actor. We have been in, in place since um, August 2018, we started operations. Uh, we use NASDAQ technology and, and that has been able for us to attract new institutional investors to dynamize our trading. As of today, only one and a half year after operation started, we have reached an average of 20% of monthly market share, with days of more than 37%. So um, we've made open innovation uh, regarding indexes more inclusive. We've reached more than 37 new, new securities that have been uh, listed in Viva, uh, and we have been uh, financing more than $20 billion so far. So we were you know, confident that we were doing our job. We were creating a, an option, a different option to access liquidity for investors in, uh, within the private equity industry that we saw was not looking into the public market as an exit strategy. So that was okay, but you know, after, after a year and a half of our new government, it has been really quite a challenge complete change of political and economic policy, an economy that had already stagnated and sank into the mild recession in the first semester of 2019, accompanied by decisions taken against long-term investments, such as the new airport, for example. So even before the pandemic, we saw a decrease in possessive flows of non-residents in equities in Mexico. We saw a great contraction in November of more than a billion dollars outflows. So um, we believe we are reaching this, this moment of conjunction of what happened in 2019-19 with um, the new pandemic that we'll, just, we'll, we'll talk about, about it later. So let me just complement what uh, Maria was saying. You know, some things which were really exciting uh, before the pandemic, Matthew, was Mexico. A friend of mine says uh, that when the world ends, he wants to be in Mexico because everything arrives late in Mexico. And the, the digital revolution is no exception to this. Uh, it arrived late, but it really arrived with a force, uh, a little bit as Maria was saying. In Mexico today, we have 100% of the working adults connected to the internet. 
we're the, the market with the highest growth of e-commerce in the world, uh, above India, above China. Latin America, as, actually, as a, as a region, is the highest growth e-commerce market in, in the world. And some large companies like Facebook or Netflix or Spotify or Amazon have seen Mexico as a, as a very important market. For example, for Netflix, Mexico is the second largest market in the world. And for Spotify, Mexico City, it's its largest market in the world on top of, for example, New York. And for Facebook, Mexico is number five. And Amazon started until 2015, talking about coming late but it's the market where it's reached a billion dollars in sales the fastest. And so we were, we were seeing a tremendous data revolution and that's something that was going on really well in Mexico before the crisis. Great, interesting view of, of things exploding and going really, really well and then a crisis hitting before this current crisis. So um, why don't we move up to the current day and start with the focus on capital markets. So as this crisis hit, what's been happening in capital markets around high growth firms, around foreign direct investment? What impact has that, has that had in the, these last months? Sure. Let me just go back to 2019. We ended this year with all-time highs in international capital markets with the longest bull market period in history, 30% growth. Mexican market closed, though, with a modest 4% due to national factors, uncertainty, and low economic growth expectations. So we started 2020, and despite this trade agreement that was reached uh, early January between US and China, the US and global markets began to speculate and, and, and show some volatility given the expansion of coronavirus. Closure of factories, shops, and contraction of the productive supply of this country. So as a result of a rapidly developing global pandemic, key global stock exchanges suffered the worst intraday fall since 2008, limiting a positive start to the quarter in terms of IPO and quarter offer activity. The S&P 500 decreased more than 25%, leading to a new bear market state. While in case of Europe and Germany, London, Spain, France, all had contractions of over 30% during this year. In the same month, market volatility reached its highest level since the global financial crisis as well. Mexican case was no exception. Expectations for job creation in Mexico for the rest of the years are negative. And local consumption will fall approximately 5.5%. This affects the results of our capital market. And we, we compare our proper index, which is called FTSE Viva, um, in April, just uh, to April 2019, we're looking at a 15% decrease against Mexico and that's year. Annual growth expectations for Mexico are being revised downwards as well. According to various banks and financial entities, we see expectations ranging from minus three to minus nine. So we've seen a contraction from investors towards our country. We are not only facing COVID, but also we have diverse factors summoned to this crisis. With the old oil prices as well, this situation also compromises the viability of the oil productive productivity in Mexico and uh, government oil revenues come down. 
So this context has been accompanied by not well-perceived government decisions, such as cancellations from border core investments, such as Cervecera conservation grants, and finally, the persistence of federal governments carry out with large investment uh, opportunities that not yet have demonstrated uh, feasibility. So the outlook for the remainder of 2020 is highly uncertain. And until the markets become more comfortable with a consensus on the effects of the lockdown measures on the economy, and, and we are also not seeing any deployment or any pipeline in productive or developing projects. So we, we don't have any secades or surfies or weeds or any any projects in the short term. Well, let me put a, a, a more positive note because clearly the macro situation here is very concerning. But as I was saying, we were coming from a, from a big boom in the digital economy in Mexico. And partly because it's still things were very underpenetrated. That penetration of e-commerce, for example, in Mexico was half that of Brazil. And, and Brazil was about half of the United States. So in general, it was very underpenetrated. And this, uh, this pandemic has become an accelerator to the digital economy. And we're seeing it already. And give, let me give you some examples. A company called Tienda Nube that operates in Brazil and in, in Argentina has since, since the crisis between 100 to, to 250% growth. This company helps SMEs to start selling in e-commerce. Or a company called Kinedu, which does early childhood education and has increased about 120% since the crisis. Or a company called Arcus that does bill collections, you can now pay your utility bill online instead of what people used to do, going to the bank, etc. It has grown 135% since the start of the crisis. So these are some examples of companies that are doing really well. In general, we are seeing tremendous growth in the whole space of, of the duty economy. So this is a huge opportunity for new entrepreneurs and a huge opportunity for new talent that a world that is moving from analog to digital. That's fascinating. It's interesting to see where the baseline was in terms of penetration, creating new opportunities for really, really rapid growth. Um, as I'm thinking about the services that you're talking about, I'm imagining the users of those services and some of the smaller firms that they might be competing with, the small little stores on the corner and uh, the micro enterprises. So it's sort of thinking about it from the workforce level and sort of the, the great majority of small, medium-sized enterprises and the workers who are both in the formal and informal economy, um, what's been going on there and, and how have those sectors been holding up? Before the crisis, we had historical lows in unemployment. So we confronted the crisis from a point of strength from that point of view. However, obviously things have changed significantly. So I'm, I'm gonna present here what's going on in terms of microentrepreneurs in Mexico and, uh, and also people that are employed. So since the crisis, uh, when you ask them what's your biggest concern, uh, number one, they answered their debts. And number two is their job. And number three is their health. It's interesting how low health is, which tells you a little bit that the message hasn't really penetrated and on how deadly this virus is. 
one important part is, okay, people don't have a job, but they usually either receive government subsidies or help for family members. In the case of Mexico, it's very important money transfers for the, from their family members that are working in the U.S. So 60% were receiving some sort of subsidy or family support. So what has happened with this support since then? About half of them have lost one of those supports. So this is obviously something which is quite, quite dire, especially for, for people in the base of the pyramid. So this situation has become quite worse in four weeks, even though in the past couple of weeks has stayed quite stable. Now, 50% have closed their business. Imagine you're an entrepreneur, micro-entrepreneur that's selling a fruit stand in the street and you're living on a daily basis and either you're not selling or you have to close your business. And 36% of them have decreased their sales. Now, if you're an employee, 16% says everything is the same, but four weeks ago it was 35%. And about 17% has been fired. That has stayed quite stable in the past four weeks. 37% have experienced a salary reduction. And again, it has gotten worse in the last four weeks. And 18 to 20% have not been paid, but are still working. Now, if you ask them, what's your income today versus before COVID-19? on average is 30% income versus before COVID-19. This has stayed quite stable in the past four weeks, but the big question is how long will people be gonna be able to last with one third of their income? This is the part that is most worrisome in Mexico right now. So what has the Mexican government been doing to confront the impact of COVID-19? There have been a lot of comparisons with other governments on the left, such as Argentina, which has taken a different route. What is Mexico's government doing to protect the country's businesses? And what does this mean looking forward to future recovery? Maria Ariza. As Alvaro was saying, basically, 99.8% uh, of, of companies are SMEs in Mexico. And that traduces to more than 5 million companies, of which 50% are informal. So government announced as part of its economic recovery, only 2 million loans for these companies, for this 5 million. One of, of those million will come from the Mexican Social Security Institute, around, credits around $1,200, which considering the cost of wages, I think will be low. The other, the other million uh, will be given by the Ministry of Economy, and those are also $1,200 credits. But for self-employment, mostly, uh, informal sector, including taxi drivers, waiters, uh, markets on roads. So total package from the government was less than 0.5% of GDP. Um, no packages for larger companies and no space for tax payment extensions as seen in other economies. So as you said, you know, other, other countries such as Colombia and, and Chile, where, which are in Latin, have packages between 5 and 8% GDP. In addition, the current federal government has this, uh, decided not to incur more debt, not to make use of its credit lines by International Monetary Fund, and, that, and not to postpone high investment projects in the short term, such as the Maya train. So what, what we've seen is uh, many of these businesses have, have been closing, resulting in, in unemployment and economic applications. 
just in April 2020, uh, the government announced that half a million jobs were lost. This figure um, is especially alarming when, when considering that this is only accounting for formal jobs. So um, the negative impacts uh, for most disadvantaged will be felt for years to come uh, within education, healthcare, and access to jobs. So obviously we have the central bank. They announced a liquidity line for banks of approximately $30 billion. One part of it, one third of that, was uh, to fund SMEs. When the announcement was made, that was a very good news. However, now that uh, we're starting to understand how that will work, it's going to be extremely difficult to implement. So uh, as a comparison to, to the PPP in the, in the US, the, the support that was given to SMEs, which was very simple to operate, this one is, is tremendously difficult to operate. So we are not very hopeful on those funds making it to the SMEs. And then there was also a big announcement from the part of the uh, IDB, the Inter-American Development Bank, together with an organization of, of business people in Mexico to also provide financing to SMEs. They announced about 12.5 billion, but this turns out that it's only good for those, that, those SMEs that are B2B, that sell to businesses. Uh, and that's a minority of the SMEs. The majority of the SMEs are B2C. They sell directly to consumers. So um, unfortunately, there's not a lot of help. In Mexico, the announcements that have been made, it's only 0.1% of GDP for help. Uh, when you compare to countries like Peru, which is you know, in the high single digits, and the US obviously, what the U.S. is doing, just to put things in perspective, the incentive package from the U.S. is two times the Mexican economy. The, the good news here, as I, as I was saying earlier, is that some, some of the states are very much an export engine for Mexico. For example, Nuevo León is doing very well. Uh, Nuevo León has a lot of manufacturing facilities that export to the U.S. So there are some states that are doing extremely well in facing the pandemic. And they're well positioned to capture that opportunity in the U.S. when the U.S. starts the economy again. And from a geopolitical perspective, the fact that the U.S. now wants to diversify more from China, these states will be able to capture a lot of that demand from the U.S. So at the regional level, there are good news. That's great to hear. And, you know, I've read somewhat about pressure from the U.S. to get factories opened along the border and this synchronizing the, the pandemics across the two countries seems to be complicated. What are your thoughts on how that might influence the potential exit pathways? Well, a Mexican president about a bit more than a hundred years ago said, uh, so close from, from the US, so far from God. So we have the benefit of being very close to the US and, and that puts us in a position of strength. And uh, literally as we speak, the, the cabinet of the, of the Mexican government is having meetings to see which sectors they're going to allow to open up and at what speed and very importantly in what regions because you have to think regionally here. The, those states that are doing well, let them open up sooner and be able to connect with the supply chain of the U.S. One obvious one is the auto sector. And we have a huge auto parts sector that supplies to the U.S. Hopefully, those companies will be able to open up. All right, great. So we have a number of questions that have been coming in 
um, from all over the world to you all. So I'm going to start with one that came in from, from the UK. The question is that despite the volatility, um, what are the elements that make the Mexican market attractive? So exchange rates, uh, skilled workforce, um, and, and what's your sense of really what makes uh, Mexico a, a, an attractive investment uh, destination? I think Mexico um, ha has a great opportunity, as, as Alvaro said, uh, since we are uh, proximate to the U.S. and we have this agreement for Connect, and, and we have great potential to put it together and, and start, you know, as, as soon as the U.S. opens up, Mexico can start opening operations in that sense. And, and I think that makes us a very, com a very competitive area. But also, I think we like all the talent in Mexico, all the technology we've seen, the opportunities within the financial sector to deepen um, our financial uh, financial markets, not not only within the ba the banking sector, but also uh, making the, the markets, the other non-banking segments, more more reliable, more more open to innovative new startups. I, I think that's that's a, a very interesting area that that Mexico has for the future. And I think funds from, from abroad and, and important investors looking at these opportunities. And I believe whenever those uh, pandemics go down, Mexico will be, will be in shape. We work from now uh, in terms of allocating capital to, to these new uh, technologies, digital, as, 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 as Alvaro said, non-banking institutions that also uh, permit the capital to SMEs in those areas will be uh, important to develop uh, and, and the economy in Mexico and accompany the process of Mexico being next to the U.S. and opening new ways of, of trading with the U.S. Just to complement, I mean, a couple of things. One is Mexico has great talent. We uh, graduate 120,000 engineers per year. One interesting anecdote is, for example, with Lego, the toy company came to Mexico and, and, and set up a, a manufacturing facility. They were the first ones to be surprised that out of 1,500 people that they had to hire, there were only two expats because they, they found tremendously good talent in Mexico. And in specifically in areas, Maria mentioned fintech, there's a huge opportunity in fintech, partly because the low penetration of financial services, but also because the incumbents uh, have a lot to be desired on, on the quality of their services. Uh, in that, in specific, for example, credit to SMEs, there's a huge opportunity. I talked about exports, all about logistics. It's a huge opportunity and also industrial facilities and everything about e-commerce. This pandemic will create a huge change in behavior. And uh, a lot of people were still reluctant to, to do, uh, you buy through e-commerce, through e and now they're having to do it. They're being forced to do it. And they're figuring out that it actually works. And the boom that we're going to have in Mexico is going to be huge. Just to, just to give you some numbers. By 2023, we expected to have about 11% penetration of e-commerce. Now, by 2023, we expect to have about 15 to 16% penetration of e-commerce, which is where the U.S. is today. So... Um, so just around the corner, we'll have the penetration. And as you can, you know, the disruption that is going on. You're in the UK. The UK right now is at around 18%. So we're going to be close to a country like the UK in just a few years. Uh, and that's a huge opportunity. Another question that came in actually from Mexico, from uh, Viola Garcia, 
um, was, is about the, the rate of recovery of the SMEs. So how fast do you think, um, and this was for Alvaro, that the SMEs are going to recover from the, from the, the crisis triggered by COVID-19? They will recover relatively fast because they tend to focus on basic needs. The SMEs, again, companies from 10 employees to 100 employees, those will take much longer. Those are much, they, those are much more connected to the macroeconomy. And when you, when you put on top of that, the fact that there is no access to financing, and just to give you some, some sense of dimension, credit to SMEs in Mexico is 2% of GDP. For example, Brazil is 7% of GDP. Peru is 8% of GDP. Chile is 11% of GDP. So penetration of loans to SMEs in Mexico is tremendously low. And without access to financing, it's going to be very, very hard for them to recover anytime soon. And Alvaro, I think basically the packages that we're seeing are for the, the micro companies, the small and micro companies and the informal, one, one million informal uh, employees. We're, we're, you know, we're not really seeing something for medium-sized companies that, that have invested, that, that have a, you know, a manufacturing plant or that, that have a store and that need, need capital to go on, no? And, and Mexico has a, has a financing system that has only been looking at the, at the traditional banking. So I think we, we are missing this other part. How do we tap into the SMEs that are uh, being capitalized by non-banking uh, non institutions? So what we believe is uh, those can be tapped through the market. For, for those that are already accredited in the, in the market, government can push some capital into those non-banking institutions that are uh, listed, and that capital can flow into the SMEs that are accredited. So I think we have this other part that we are not tapping there, we're not using, and that we are forgetting. And, and that's a lot of companies out there in, in Mexico that need the liquidity, that need the capital, to pass this, this crisis now. Thank you. So one other question that came in is more general, stepping back. And it's a question from Samuel saying, what kind of leaderships do you think the world is looking out for during these, these, these difficult times? This is a, an, a really interesting discussion in terms of this pandemic, this world crisis. We're facing it with very weak leadership. And when you think about when was the last time that uh, the world faced such a large crisis, uh, it happened uh, probably in, in the World War II. And in that case, we faced that crisis with very strong leaders. leaders. We now look back to the Churchills and the Roosevelt's as, as examples of great leadership. And I think, I think the leadership that we now have leaves a lot to be desired. So we definitely are handicapped in facing this crisis. When you do a correlation of the countries that are doing the worst uh, in the crisis and the type of leadership that they have, there's a strong correlation between populists and not doing well in terms of the, on the pandemic, right? So to answer the question, we definitely do not need populists because the numbers show that they're not doing well in facing the pandemic. Some populists are doing better. Argentina stands out, I must say, as someone who 
often thinks a lot about Argentina's difficulties as a populist government that's taken a very different turn. There's definitely always the exception to the rule. Yes. Now, once the pandemic is over, we have the economic crisis, and that's going to be a long winter. So I think uh, people that, that have a much better understanding of the economy and how to fare that better will be a very strong capability for leaders. I was maybe thinking on leaders that take risks, leaders that work in different ways, that are flexible, that can listen to others. I think that's exactly what we need. I think once after the economic crisis, we're going to face a social crisis. Our last big cri economic crisis was in 1995. So it's already been 25 years. But in that case, we had two big benefits. One was the bailout from the US, and the second was emigration. About 3 million people emigrated to the US, which that was a huge pressure valve for us. This time around, we're not gonna get salvaged by the US. They have their own problems. And two, forget about emigrating to the US. There are no jobs there, so why emigrate, right? And without a pressure bulb, the social crisis will most likely be dire. And so locally, you will need credible leaders that are able to work with society so that the social crisis doesn't get out of hand. So to end on, a, on an optimistic note, what are your hopes for the world that will emerge from this other side? So we talked about so we have this crisis, but things are shifting. What are your hopes for where we might be better off? Well, I'm, I'm actually quite hopeful on two fronts. One is, we were talking about a change in behavior. And for the first time, we've been talking about not having profit as the only objective. Said is a, a leader in the world in social enterprise and it's had for many years a focus on how to create a, a better society. So for the first time, we did not put profits or the economy as a priority. We put health as a priority. And I think that's a huge shift in the paradigm. And I think that paradigm will remain. And that world that many of us were imagining for many years, and especially the new generations that really understand how Profits cannot be the only priority. I'm not saying that they should be a priority, that it should not be the only priority. Uh, I think that world that those, that new generation is imagining, it's gonna happen. And the new generation, it's much better prepared to cope with that type of new rules. And so I think it's a huge opportunity. And the second part that I'm very optimistic about is the world will become much more digital. And by the world becoming much more digital, the world will be much flatter. Tom Friedman wrote the book, The World is Flat already about 15 years ago. Uh, with this now, the world will be, become much more flatter. Now, we're used to working remotely, and now you'll be able to much easier hire the computer scientists from Thailand that before, you know, you thought that probably you need to bring that person locally, et cetera, et cetera. So I think it's gonna be much more democratic. Maria, I'll give you the last word. I'm optimistic as well. I mean, I know this is a great challenge and we're living uh, very tough times, but we have lived them in the past and we have recovered and markets recover after all. I don't know if it's gonna take one month or one year or 10 years, 
but we will be back. We will be back, and opportunities will be there for those who are ready to take them. My thanks to Maria Ariza, Alvaro Rodriguez Regi, and Matthew Amengel. I'm Peter Tefano, and you've been listening to Leadership in Extraordinary Times, a podcast from Oxford University's Side Business School. Take a moment to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And to find out more about Leadership in Extraordinary Times, please visit OxfordAnswers.org.